Our scripture uh, this morning is from Luke 4. Um, I'm going to read 14 through 21, but I'm going to talk about more of this story than just what we're reading this morning. I realized in preparation that I really need to talk about kind of the whole event, which I will do. But let me just read verses 14 through 21 in Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this particular scripture that um, is like a seed. And we ask that it be planted in our hearts, that it may grow and bear fruit, not only for our own lives, but <clears throat> fruit for the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning I'd like to talk about the Bible. I'd like to talk about scripture and sermons. Uh, this is a good opportunity to do it because it was Jesus' very first sermon. And uh, after his very first sermon, as we'll see, uh, they tried to run him off a cliff. I'm hoping to avoid that particular outcome after this particular sermon. And we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, but you could also argue that them trying to get him off of a cliff was meant that he successfully preached. Um, which we'll look at as well. Um, it's another. It's also a good time to think about preaching and thinking about the Bible because we're remembering Martin Luther King Jr. And this was someone who, for whom um, Scripture was so much a part of the way he spoke and what he spoke. It was woven in and it was inseparable. And really it was the source of, of much of his power and what he was able to accomplish. So you've heard part of the story of this sermon, you've heard the beginning of it, uh, and it really represents a change um, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus starts out as kind of a superstar. He's very well-known, very well-liked. He's traveling around, he's doing like tour to tour to tour to Galilee, and, and then finally he comes back to his hometown. And his hometown experience is not exactly what it would be like if Bruce Springsteen, you know, when he goes back to New Jersey or, or um, U2 goes to Dublin um, or what, Wilco goes to Chicago. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cover a lot of music tastes here. Aerosmith, where do they go? I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, it's not quite like that. It doesn't go quite that well. Um, what happens is, is he preaches his sermon, he gives a very brief interpretation they interpret it as, um, this is wonderful. Oh, look how cute, you know, hometown boy, look at him go. He's quite the preacher. Um, and he's saying some lovely stuff from Isaiah. We love what he is talking about. 
And he realizes they're misinterpreting what he's saying. And this is a big problem. And so he tries to um, steer their interpretation in the direction that he wants, to go, wants it to go in. And, he's, and he tells the story of Elijah. And you may remember, we talked about this back in the fall, but Elijah um, ministers to a Gentile widow, not a Jewish widow. And this is a huge problem um, because... And so Jesus brings this up as a way of saying... When Isaiah is talking about good news to the poor, he's not just talking about you. He's also including the Gentiles. Well, this is just traitorous. This is blasphemy. This is appalling. I mean, he has turned on his own people, and that's why they want to kill him. We're going to talk this morning a little bit about scripture. We're going to talk about interpretation. We're just mainly we're going to talk about how to read the Bible. The Old Testament text that that uh, Jesus hones in on here from Isaiah is operating a lot like um, the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, it's when the Emancipation Proclamation went forth. These were extremely powerful words that altered reality as soon as they were spoken. Slavery is no more. They really didn't need much interpretation, did they? The application was fairly clear, but there was some interpretation that was needed to apply it. You didn't need, you didn't need a commentary to read the Emancipation Proclamation. It was fairly obvious what it was saying. Scripture actually is a lot like this. I know it's an ancient book. I know it's old. I know it's, sometimes it's bewildering and befuddling, but there are times when what it says is what it means, like good news to the poor. This is a message that has toppled empires. It has dethroned kings and it has raised up the poor. Scripture is shocking, comforting, bewildering, and heartbreaking. It convicts and it makes glad. It lights candles in the dark and it gives food for our journey. Just like his mother here, Jesus is unleashing Scripture more than anything else. But instead of surprise and renewing a people, it meets a fog of interpretation. All they hear when he preaches is, oh, he's talking about us. He's telling us that we are going to receive good news. Won't this be wonderful? Kierkegaard was a, a critic in the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard, and uh, he, was, he was a devout Christian, but also a profound critic of Christianity. And one of the things he, he talked about was this idea that, you know, interpreting scripture is fairly straightforward in a lot of cases, but what we have done as Christians is we've sort of built these structures of interpretation to block us from what the Bible is saying directly. And, and you think about it, think about Protestant denominations. You know, Protestants started out as this wonderful idea of everybody can read the Bible for themselves. I like that idea. I'm on board with that idea. The Catholic Church had a way of sort of protecting Scripture, protecting the interpretation. They were always between the Bible and the people. Protestants said, get rid of them. Get them out of the way. We're going to read it directly. And then what did Protestants do right away? They started fighting and then the second thing they started doing is organizing around one person. And the person they were organizing around was the person who was interpreting it for them. 
So we have Lutherans, because we like Luther's interpretation. We have Calvinists, because we like John Calvin's interpretation. We have Mennonites up the road, because we like Menno Simon's interpretation. We have Hutterites, because we like Jan Huss's interpretation. And on and on and on. So we have a challenge. We have a difficulty with interpretation. And one of the reasons we like it is because Scripture is unsettling and difficult, and we don't want to face it. And so we build structures of interpretation to buffer us from the power of Scripture. That's Kierkegaard's point, and I think he has a point there. Interpretation can be like green wood on a fire or a dull sewing needle. It's disguised to soften the blow, to domesticate, to declaw the Scriptures. Good news for the poor? It's just talking about us. Setting the captives free? Probably spiritual captivity. Loosing the chains of people who are oppressed? It's probably religious oppression. It's probably religious persecution. One common interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, is that Jesus, all this stuff about loving enemies and reconciling and all that, Jesus meant it to be impossible so that we would aspire to seek grace and forgiveness. But another possible interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is that you're supposed to love your enemies. It's just another, it's another option. But that would be very, very difficult. So I think we need a better interpretation. But since when was love ever easy? I mean, it's hard to love enemies, sure, but it's also sometimes hard to love your spouse. Sometimes it's hard to love your kids. Maybe in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus meant what he said. So one of the things we need to do when we're reading scripture is try to um, avoid the wet blanket of interpretation of, uh, that dampens the power of the text. And yet, we don't see Jesus letting the text stand for itself. Jesus actually does interpret the text that he, he offers from Isaiah, this, this powerful text of, I have been anointed to bring good news to the poor. He doesn't say, you're not listening well enough. He offers to interpret this himself. And so the second thing we need to realize is there's just no way around interpretation. We're stuck. We're always going to have to interpret the Bible. Beware the preacher, or, or anyone at all, who claims that no interpretation at all is ever necessary. It is necessary, at a minimum, to defeat bad interpretation, which is essentially what Jesus is doing here. But it's also just unavoidable. Interpretation is unavoidable. Every translation already begins the process of interpretation. Every time you take a Greek word, a Hebrew word, or an Aramaic word, and you bring it into English, there's some interpretation already going on. We can't avoid that. Every word you read is influenced by your own history of that word. Good news. Captivity. Blindness, poor. We could write a book about the different ways we come at those words. And so interpretation's true work is to hold the door open for all of us to come in and read and the power of the text to circulate around us. I have a friend who uh, lives up the road on college, North College, um, and he, he like almost literally lives on that road. 
He's got a house that's um, basically the size of a bike trailer, maybe a little bit longer. And, um, and on that bike trailer is a single verse from the Bible, actually from the book of Luke. He's very faithful to that verse. He has organized his whole life around that one verse of the Bible. And I think, as far as that verse goes, I think he has interpreted it very well. It says, sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's what that verse says. And he has done exactly that. And he is living that his whole life. He is, in a way, I, like, I think of him as sort of like drawing a circle. <clears throat> what he's done is he's, he's, he's taken this, this one scripture, he's drawn a circle about what it means to follow this scripture. And he is inside that scripture, that, that circle. But that circle is about this big. And the problem is, is there's, there's very little room for anyone else in that circle. But I think an even greater problem is there's no room for any other verses in that circle. It's true. That one verse is in the Bible. But there's a lot of other verses in the Bible, too. The meaning of that verse, it is true. It is plain. But it's not plain when you put it next to the next verse in Luke and the rest of the book of Luke and the other Gospels and the New Testament and the Old Testament. The folks in Nazareth were essentially doing the same thing. They were drawing a very small circle around Jesus' words that he was preaching good news to the poor. And they fit nicely within it, but no one else did. And Jesus came and said, we need to widen this circle. And he did that through interpretation. So that's a lot of what not to do in interpretation. Let's talk a little bit about what we should do when we read the Bible. I think the first thing we should do is to read with others in mind, or better yet, read with other people. That was the problem of the people in Nazareth. When they read it, they weren't thinking of the Gentiles. They weren't thinking of Samaritans. They weren't thinking of strangers. They weren't thinking of foreigners. They were only thinking about themselves. How does this apply to me? Growing up, that was the central question every time I read the Bible. Is I was always supposed to ask, how is this supposed to apply to me? And, you know, I was a kid. I wasn't married or anything. So, like, the marriage verses were weird. Uh, the parts about the Jews were weird. I wasn't Jewish. I'm actually still not Jewish. Uh, so there was a lot about the Bible that frankly did not apply to me. And it took me a while to realize maybe not everything in the Bible is directed at me. Maybe I could be reading this with other people in mind. This week, since we're talking about good news to the poor, I thought I would ask someone who's poor what good news looks like. There's someone I've known for, uh, I guess it's going on nine years now. Um, I see her about once a month. Uh, she comes and she gets a gift card supplied by all of you. It's not very much. Um, but she's come faithfully for nine years for this gift card. And so I got to know her. And while we were talking, which we do every time, I said, um, tell me something. If someone came to you with news that was good, what would it be? What would that news be like? And I had in my head some ideas of what she would consider good news. I had some ideas of what would be good news for her. And wouldn't you know, 
None of my ideas were what she said. Uh, her response to what good news would look like had nothing to do with money. Now we're talking about someone who is genuinely poor. When you, when you require uh, a gift card from a church to survive, um, that's poverty. But her response was deeply personal, very intimate, and really had to do with the relationships in her life. Which you know what I think is probably true of most of us when we imagine what good news is like. We have a curious habit, in a lot of ways, of thinking we know what good news would be like for somebody else without asking them first. Sometimes we put it in terms of policy or strategy or whatever, but it's almost always a one-size-fits-all idea. If we wonder what Jesus means by giving sight to the blind, for instance. A good way to understand what that verse means is by talking to someone who's blind. And do you know what? You probably are going to get more than one answer. Someone might say, good news for me would actually be to see. Yeah, I'd love that. And I think a lot of us have probably seen those YouTube videos where people can see. And, you know, there's some of the most amazing things you can see on YouTube. But there are also people who are visually impaired who would say, I don't know. I actually have all the sight that I need. And if anything, I would wish that others would have the sight to see me as a whole person. That would be good news. Not to be seen as deficient. Not to be seen as less than other people. Because I can't see as well. Maybe that's giving sight to the blind. By reading with others, what we are doing is we're holding that circle of interpretation open. We're not closing it down to only mean one thing, only mean what, what we think it means. A friend of mine got a PhD in Hebrew and at a, a university, in Paris, university of Paris, actually. And he said he didn't really know how to read the Bible until he started reading with strangers. It started when he went to Israel and he was standing in the books with a Palestinian and he started reading the Bible with them. And all of a sudden, all kinds of things he never realized were right there in front of him in the scripture. And then he went back home and he started going to prisons and reading the Bible to people there. And he called it reading the Bible with the damned. Because everybody he was reading the Bible with in the scriptures was supposedly the bad guys of the Bible. You know, the people who don't come out okay, the, the goats, you know, the, 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 other, the other guys. And reading the Bible with them was an enlightening experience. And he didn't realize, he had no idea what was going on in the Bible until he read with them. He ended up writing a book with that catchy phrase, reading the Bible with the damned. Let's do the same. Let's read with other people. Let's read with unlikely people. We should even read with dead people. Let's not be breatherists. Let's not discriminate based on pulse. That's why I have so many books in my office. Just because they're dead doesn't mean they don't have anything to say about the Bible. We should read with them too. Now, as this circle widens and widens, the obvious question is, wait a second, aren't we in danger of Scripture eventually meaning anything and everything to anyone? Is there, is there no limit on this, on this circle? Well, that's where we need to hear what Jesus says here back in our passage. After he reads the scripture from Isaiah, he says this, Today, 
It has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What he means is that he is the interpretation. Jesus himself. He is the true meaning. He is the circumference of the good news. He is that circle. And so when we read the Bible and look up perplexed, or we look up in a cold sweat, or bewildered, or unsettled, or wanting more, or excited, or wondering how this could possibly be fleshed out in real life, we have only to look to Jesus, the Word of God, who is the good news himself. Amen. Let's pray. What a gift it is to have your word in front of us, to be able to look into it, to peer into it, and to do so with others. To do so with the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, guide our interpretation. Help us to see the way in which you are bringing good news to us all through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.